Well, Hebrews 4, uh, verse 12 and 13 says this, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And it says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Speaks of the power of God's word and God's penetrating vision into our own hearts. The Lord sees our heart. And so since the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, as we come to it, let's pray that the Lord would use it as a scalpel in our own hearts this morning. So let's pray and invite his work in our hearts this morning. Heavenly Father, as we come to your heavenly word, as we come to this inspired book that you have given to us, Lord, we pray that your spirit would take these things and impress them upon our hearts. We pray that you would use this to point out errors in our thoughts, in our lives, Lord. Point out sin and bring us under the obedience of the word of God. We pray that you would make us more like Christ through our time in the word this morning. We pray that you would sanctify us in your truth, and we know that your word is truth. So we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when our state legislators are debating and voting on the definition of words like male and female, as they did this past week, and when one of our nine Supreme Court justices cannot give a definition of the word female when asked, as was done almost a year ago to the day, then it should be no surprise to us that we are living in a culture that has lost its biblical foundation. We're living in a culture and in a day when those who are created in the image of God see no reason to consult their creator regarding how we ought to live. God's good design for the world, for the family, for distinctions between male and female, for the church and for the government are all actively being subverted and recrafted after man's own liking and just outright defiance of the creator. And as a result, naturally, fear tends to rise up in our hearts when the foundational pillars of Western society are really being eroded, those pillars which are grounded by and large on biblical truth, when those are being eroded around us, it causes fear to well up in us, doesn't it? I think of Psalms 11.3 that states, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And so the temptation for us is to become anxious to fret and stew, to worry about the future, to worry about the future of our children and our grandchildren. Our concerns about the future can easily lead us into uh, the use of ungodly speech. Uh, we complain and rant about the things we believe should be. And perhaps we become bitter towards those who are publicly outright critical of us and of our Christian life and worldview and critical of biblical morals. 
And so with constant attacks coming against the church, it's really all too easy for us to just become a curmudgeon of sorts with just a crusted over demeanor and to have a a sharp tongue. And yet we know, or at least we ought to know, that God will not condone our sinful behavior, our sinful worrying or complaining or fear, just because others are sinning against us. God still expects us to walk uprightly despite those who are being evil around us. He will still hold us accountable for our behavior. And indeed, the Bible gives us no shortage of material to consider when the tide of culture has come against us, how we ought to live. In fact, we might say the majority of the Bible concerns God's people living in times when there was open hostility against God and his people and his word. For just one example of this, please open up your Bible with me this morning to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. In this passage, the Apostle Paul is instructing his disciple Timothy in matters concerning pastoral ministry. The Apostle Paul is instructing his disciple, Timothy, about how to be a faithful pastor in what we might call a godless culture. How Timothy was to lead the church. Paul had trained up Timothy for pastoral ministry and was continuing now to invest in him by the means of this particular letter that has been inscripturated in our Bibles known as 2 Timothy. So look with me at chapter 3, verse 1. Here's Paul preparing Timothy for difficult days ahead. Look at it there, verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these, the Apostle Paul writes. So these are the descriptions of the last days, or really the type of men that will be characteristic of the last days. And with each description given here, we could immediately think of examples of these very things in our own day and in our own time. We are unquestionably living through what Paul previewed for Timothy. Our society champions and everywhere promotes the love of self, which is really the chief characteristic of the ungodly men described in this passage. It is the first and preeminent characteristic here. But look ahead at verse 10 in your Bibles. Verse 10, Paul says, Now you, Timothy, followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord has rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I think we do well to ask ourselves, do we believe that? 
Do we believe that if we live a godly life, a Christ-like life, a life that's pleasing to our Heavenly Father, then we will be persecuted? I mean, understand that this, this has been true in every age of the church. For those who set themselves apart for the Lord, who don't just play around with Christian things, but who earnestly attempt to be faithful to the Lord's word in their lives and who pursue godliness, they will be persecuted. That's the promise here. So certainly we should not be surprised and and offended when the culture around us opposes the things of the Lord. Such opposition is really a guarantee for us. We should not expect things to go well for us in this life, and we should not expect peace and harmony with the world. In verse 14, Paul reminds Timothy what he must do in the face of such opposition. Look at verse 14. Paul says, You, however, continue in the things you have heard and become convinced of, knowing that whom you've learned them from, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So here's the apostle's commands to Timothy in the midst of this godless culture. He says, look, give yourself to the word of God, Timothy. Continue in the scriptures. Use them in evangelism so that individuals may be led to salvation. Teach them to your people. Equip them in the word of God. And Paul takes this even one step further in chapter 4. Look at the opening there of chapter 4. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Paul says, look, Timothy, this is what you must do as a pastor. You must preach, and you must preach the word. You must saturate your people in the truth of the Bible. You need to read the Bible and explain the Bible, and then exhort obedience to the Bible. You rebuke and you correct with the Bible, with all great patience and instruction. This is what you are to do, Timothy. Nevertheless, this great directive for pastoral ministry would not be easy for ministry. Paul knew that. And so Paul looks ahead into Timothy's future, beginning in verse 3. Look at it. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they'll turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. In the future there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, And not only to me, but also to all those who have loved 
his appearing. Notice here that Paul's life was coming to an end. He wrote from a Roman prison, soon to be martyred. This was no life of worldly blessing, a life, no life of peace and comfort here and now. Paul says, look, I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. And he says, I have kept the faith. So despite the untold challenges and difficulties that Paul faced in this life, his trust and his faith remained a constant in the Lord. His hope was set on the future. He was looking beyond this life. We see that in verse 8. Look at it again. In the future, there's laid up for me a, a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, that is the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but all those who love his appearing. So this was Paul's hope. He was looking for this blessed appearing. And he knew that he would soon receive this crown of righteousness. And so he endured. And he calls Timothy for the very same reason to endure. Look at it again in verse 5. But you, Timothy, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So despite all of the external difficulties that Timothy would face, he needed to maintain an outward ministry, enduring hardship, and continuing to do the work of an evangelist, continuing ministering God's word to those inside the church and those outside the church. And as you see, if, if Timothy could possess the same future hope that Paul had, then Paul knew that he would be able to endure all of the trials that Timothy would face in this life, come what may. And this is the fight of faith that Paul ran and that Timothy was now called to run after him and that many others have run since. This is faithfulness amid affliction and faithfulness despite persecution. And really the examples of such lives of enduring faithfulness in Scripture are really numerous. I mean, just to name a few, we recall, for example, Stephen, just stoned as a courageous witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Or we remember John the Baptist beheaded for proclaiming the righteousness of God to an evil magistrate. Or we think of Jeremiah, just, just dedicated to Yahweh, faithful in his allegiance and yet outcasted for his unswavering obedience to Yahweh. Indeed, we remember here, all those who seek to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's true. We see this. So the question really becomes for us, how do we do this well? How do we live godly in the midst of persecution, in the midst of opposition? What does faithfulness look like in a life full of opposition? Can we be godly despite constant opposition in this life, despite being sinned against regularly? Well, there's many examples we could turn to, but this morning we come again to the book of Psalms, to the book of Psalms, in particular, Psalm 4. If you would, please turn there with me. Psalm 4, we return to the man who's been given the distinctive title by God, a man after God's own heart. And we learn from 
the inspired example left behind for us in the words of this ancient Hebrew song. Really, Psalm 4 is a window into the devotional life of David's own heart. And by tracing David's own example, I think we can find much instruction and much encouragement for our own lives. Indeed, Psalm 4 is a portion of Holy Scripture that is meant to equip us for every good work. And therefore, as we read and consider it together, we need to think and pray, God, use this, equip me for life and ministry through this passage. So look at it with me and follow along as I read Psalm 4, beginning in verse 1. David writes, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. As we re reflect upon this psalm together this morning, I want you to see three descriptions of a godly life here. Three descriptions of faithfulness in, in the midst of opposition. B before we walk through this psalm, I, I want you to get a sense of the opposition that David was up against. If we come to Psalm 4 and we fail to see the pressure against David, if we fail to hear the voice of his adversaries, then I think we'll miss what the Holy Spirit would have us learn and understand from this passage. So look, at with, me, look with me at verse 2. Verse 2, it says this, O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? So David is asking a question here to the sons of men. We say, who's that? Well, this is a, a title typically associated with dignitaries in Israel. In Psalm 62, verse 9, for example, this phrase, this same phrase is rendered men of rank, me meaning men of position, men of renown. We would say these are well-respected individuals, perhaps leaders in Israel. And somehow, or for some reason that we do not know, these individuals have turned on David. And they were turning David's honor into something dishonorable, into a reproach. That's what it says. That he turns my glory or my honor into a reproach, into dishonor. It says they also loved vanity. David writes, how long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? It seems that they had a passion for that which was empty. And perhaps in light of the following reference to aiming at deception, or literally aiming at lies, we should understand this first phrase about loving what is empty to refer to loving empty words. They loved false words. 
They love to lie, and they love to set their hearts on deceiving others. They were, they were attempting to deceive others and manipulate the truth. And that the fact that David's honor is being converted into dishonor or into shame somehow, it's likely that David was here being falsely accused in verse 2. David's honor was being portrayed as if it were evil. And so in Psalm 4, we need to see that David, as the psalmist, was suffering from some form of character assassination here. This was the opposition that he was up against. Notice also the opening line of verse 6. Look there, it says, Many are saying, who will show us any good? Here is another source of opposition in this psalm, and it could be that this is the the sons of men, as we saw in verse 2, and that the many of verse 6 could be the same group. But I suspect it, it might be a different group here. You see, the sons of men, that group in verse 2, were actively working against David. They they were falsely accusing him. But the many of verse 6 seems to be a group of discouraged saints. They are doubters, perhaps even defectors among the ranks of David's own friends and his companions. Apparently, there were many around David who were complaining about their hardship. Who will show us any good in this life? Our lives have been so hard. These are words of self-pity. They're words of individuals who are bent on an inward focus about themselves, just focused on the misery of their own soul. And notice that they identify themselves with God's people. Who will show us any good? But they also lack faith. They doubt God's character. So if if verse 2 contains accusations against David, verse 6 contains accusations against God. I think we can find other clues here in the text about those who are opposing David. But for now, I hope you see that inside of Israel, not everyone loved David. There were those who were actively working to undermine his character, who were speaking against him, destroying the public opinion about him. And in verse 6, there's, there were those who were going astray in their hearts, to use the words of Psalm 95. Their life had become difficult And now their faith was faltering and they questioned God. So these were the external pressures coming against David in this psalm. This was the community that he was immersed in. And now we look to David's response, which is really this inspired example for us. And here as we look at this, we ought to let David's godly example in the face of opposition be instructive to us. May we be molded and shaped by David's own heart and example. That's our goal in this passage. This psalm was written for our benefit. We must learn from it. We must be equipped by it. So let us learn from David as he faithfully navigates opposition. And this brings us to the first description of the life of the godly in the face of opposition. I'm just calling it confident praying. Confident praying in verse 1. Look at it again with me in your Bible. Verse 1, David says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and and hear my prayer. In In this verse, David brings three prayer requests to the Lord. And he refers to the Lord, or God, in this prayer as 
the God of my righteousness. It's really an interesting phrase. The translators of the NIV Bible simply translate this phrase as my righteous God. That's how they word it. But I doubt that that's the idea here. I don't think that's the idea in David's mind. I think it's far better to simply leave this phrase as the God of my righteousness or my, the God of my righteousness. In the Psalms, we regularly find the phrase, God of my salvation. That is the God who saves me. But nowhere else do we find a reference to the God of my righteousness. But like God of salvation refers to the God who saves me, I think God of my righteousness refers to the God who makes me righteous or or the God who causes me to be righteous. This title for God emphasizes that David's righteousness had been given to him by God. In light of all of the false accusations coming against David, God is the one who vindicates him. God is the one who makes him stand in righteousness. I think it's important here to pause and just note that David does not attribute his own righteousness, his own upright moral character to himself. No, he attributes it all to God. It's the righteousness that's come to him from God. And and this is always the case in Scripture. Whenever we make any progress in growing to be more like Christ, it's not as if we can take any credit for that of ourselves. That comes to us from God. We would say, of course, our effort is involved as we seek to grow in godliness, but it's God's grace that is working through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to make us more righteous, to grow us in practical righteousness. He is the God of our righteousness. Our righteousness comes from him. The Spirit of God bears his fruit in our lives to make us more holy. Again, our practical righteousness comes from him. And so we take no credit for it. And so David is here praying to the God of of his righteousness, the God who produces righteousness in us, and his prayer is threefold. He says, answer me when I call, be gracious to me, and hear my prayer. David is knocking on the door of his heavenly father seeking help, and it's really a simple prayer. He says, please answer me. Please be gracious. Pour out your grace upon me, and please hear my prayer. David is seeking God's gracious intervention in his life. And I believe when he says, answer me, I don't think he's looking for a verbal response. Rather, he's looking just for a divine intervention of grace in his life. Additionally, David's confident prayer found in verse 1, inside this, there's a line tucked in the middle of verse 1 that we do well to consider. My version reads, you have relieved me in my distress. You see that there. The Hebrew language here is quite picturesque. The word distress literally means narrow. It means narrowness. For example, in Psalm 23, verse 27, this word is used to describe a narrow well. So it can, it can refer to a constricted or tight area, or it can refer to being constricted in life, to be in trouble, to be in distress, to be in desperate straits, we might say. And the verb in this line means to make wide or to enlarge in. So David writes, look, when I've been in tight spots in the past, 
You have always made those spots wide for me. You've enlarged my constrictions that I've dealt with in this life. Some versions translate this part as a request, sort of saying, God, please give me uh, some, some relief from my distress, but I don't think that's the right idea. David is calling to mind the Lord's past faithfulness in his life as really sort of the foundation for his prayers now. On this passage, Charles Spurgeon said, here is another instance of David's common habit of pleading past mercies as a ground for present favor. I like that. David's saying, look, you've been so merciful to me just time and time again in the past. Please do so now again. Please act the same here and now. So this is the first description of David's example that we can learn from. Here's the, the famed king of Israel, yet poor and needy, calling out for God's intervention. And I think we do well to not just gloss over this opening verse. When the culture is really self-destructing all around us, and as we are just experiencing increasing pressure against us and opposition, are we expressing a proper dependence on the Lord? As fears increase, have our prayers increased just the same? Certainly David's example here in Psalm 4 would call us in that direction. Uh, simply just humbly calling out to the Lord for help in the face of opposition. That's what we are to do, just like David did. And this brings us to the second description of the godly in the face of opposition. I'm calling it unashamed witnessing. Unashamed witnessing. Look at verses 2 through 5 with me. David says, O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in Yahweh. Trust in the Lord. Here I believe David starts to go on the offensive. We've seen the false accusations of these sons of men in verse 2, but David's not just going to roll over and die here. He starts giving his adversaries orders here. In, first, in verse 3, he calls them to take note of something, learn something. He says, consider this. Yahweh has set apart the godly man for himself. He hears me when I call to him. He says, look, you might be attempting to bring reproach upon my name, but God is in my corner. I have Yahweh with me. He has set apart the godly man unto himself. He's, David is saying, look, because of my godliness and my faithfulness, the very things which God gave to me, by the way, back in verse 1, now God will provide for me. He provides for me. God has marked me off for himself. The second half of verse 3 makes it clear that David is really talking about himself in verse 3. And it may strike us as a bit odd that David is talking about himself like this, but it's, it's true. It's true of David and it's true of the godly in every age. David knew that God communes with those who are righteous. I mean, just to compare it with another psalm, Psalm 24 says, 
Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Who may experience unique fellowship with God? The psalmist writes, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, he who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, who's not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So in essence, in all of these attempts to discredit David, they would be futile. David would, the Lord would prove them to be worthless in the end. Perhaps they would have some effect upon the men in the community. But before God, David's position was secure. The Lord has set apart the godly unto himself. I just find verse 3 to be striking, frankly. And I think it should be an encouragement to us. It should spur us on to pursue just greater and greater godliness in our lives, knowing that the godly have been set apart for God, a special, unique privilege for them. And just also think that for David to say this, there must have been no hypocrisy in his life. These things were true of him. There were no areas of moral deficiency in his heart. He just says, look, the Lord has set me apart to himself. What an amazing thing to say. But he continues to instruct his adversaries. In verse 4, he gives them four more commands all in one verse. He says, tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. As David's adversaries were trying to discredit him and to slander him, David arrests them with these words. He says, tremble and do not sin. A command, it's an imperative. Tremble and do not sin. This word tremble is the here this that's the first command of verse four is used five a total of five times in in the Psalter and all of them mean to tremble to shake with fear for example in Psalm 18 verse 7 the mountains tremble and the earth shook before the fury of Yahweh or in Psalm 77 verse 16 the the depths of the earth tremble before God or Psalm 99 verse 1 it says the Lord reigns Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The verb means to just tremble with emotion, and usually the emotion of fear. I emphasize this because the English Standard Version here translates this line as, be angry and do not sin. That's a notable difference. And I really don't think that's the idea here at all. David is not calling anyone to be angry. Rather, he's calling his adversaries to now tremble before Yahweh. Quake with fear before a holy God and be careful that you do not sin against him. That's his warning to them. Just as a side note, the ESV prefers the wording of be angry and do not sin because that's the wording of Ephesians 4.26 in the New Testament. In Ephesians 4.26, when Paul writes, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. A well-known verse. It's quite common to assume that Paul is quoting directly from Psalm 4.4. So some translators are then persuaded that Psalm 4.4 must also mean be angry and do not sin. The problem is that in the command here in the Hebrew in Psalm 4.4, it does not mean to be angry. It means to tremble. It means to shake, literally. So, 
I don't think it's the same command. And in fact, I don't believe Paul is directly quoting from Psalm 4.4 in Ephesians 4.26. I know that's a common thought. And I question even whether Psalm 4 was in Paul's mind at all when he was writing the fourth chapter of Ephesians. I just say that all as a side note because I think we commonly connect these verses. But at any rate, the command in Psalm 4.4, again, is to tremble, to shake with fear before him, and therefore do not sin. Recognize who you're up against and bring your life under obedience to the Lord. Do not sin. And he continues, meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Meditate, literally speak to yourself as you're sitting upon your bed or as laying upon your pillow. Instruct yourself here. And he says, be still. This is commonly used to just pause in reverence before the Lord. So David's saying, look, at the, end of the, at the end of the day, as you reflect upon the day that you just live, speak to yourself in your heart. In essence, he's saying, look, you need to tread lightly, friend. Consider your ways and quiet your soul before God. I just find this to be a sober, straight-faced call to repentance from David. Here's David just cutting it straight. He's not wasting time with any pleasantries here. And I really think this is the type of bold witness that we must have. Just an unflinching courage to warn sinners of the utter foolishness of all of their trifling about before God, all of their redefining of terms and doing away with his law and his purposes. This is like the Old Testament equivalent to just a sober evangelistic call to faith and repentance that we might find in the New Testament. This is like Jesus in, in Luke 13 warning sinners, look, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. You will die. You need to repent. So in the midst of a godless culture, with all sorts of railings against God and his people, what is needed are clarion calls for repentance from God's people. Bold proclamations like, like the John the Baptist declaring, it's not lawful to have your brother's wife, Herod, in Mark 6. It's, it's like that. Or the Apostle Paul confronting the men of Athens with these words in Acts 17. He says, look, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Imagine Paul preaching that in Athens and how just that would have silenced people. God is declaring to you, you must repent. Bring your life under him or you will be judged. That was the warning. And I think this is the kind of unashamed witness that is found here in Psalm 4. This is the type of intensity in these words. And David continues. He's not finished addressing the sons of men. He says, more commands. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. So David has really now called for a cessation of their sinful behavior. And now he calls them to do what's right. Literally, sacrifice the sacrifices of righteousness. And David is, I believe here, not calling for the shedding of animals' blood. That could be the meaning. But I think he's calling for the sacrifices of righteous living. It's very similar to what we 
might find in a passage like Romans 12.1, where it says, Paul kind of concludes his argument by saying, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice to God. It's that kind of a sacrifice. It's a living and holy sacrifice. David's saying, look, order your lives righteously before the Lord. Put off your sin and rebellion and put on righteous behavior. And finally, trust in Yahweh. Place your faith, place your faith in him. Again, this is why I say the, the psalmist here is shifting into the offensive. He's putting his critics on notice here. So often it seems that our natural response to affliction and to persecution uh, don't reflect this. Perhaps we, we just clam up and we cower in fear when anyone says anything against us, or perhaps we, we grow angry and we just kind of secretly slander and cut down those who oppose us in our own corners and enclaves. But here, this steely-eyed psalmist is preaching repentance and faith to his adversaries. Much like the, the galvanized, unashamed witnessing that really ought to characterize our own lives. I mean, I think of this today, what would this look like? It's like us saying, look, understand as you revile the Lord and you work against him, you can speak evil against me and the Lord all you want today, but, but take special note of this. Your day is coming when you will stand before the Lord of glory and you will give an account for your rebellion and you laugh now, but you will not be laughing on the last day when your eternal destiny becomes irreversibly clear in your own mind. On that day, dread will overtake you and on that day you will tremble in the way that you should be trembling here today before Yahweh and on that day you will wish that you surrendered to the Christ that I'm preaching to you today. You will wish that you hadn't squandered God's free gift of his son to you to save your soul from eternal misery. I believe that's the type of intensity that is called for when we preach Christ to those who are in obstinate opposition to the Lord and his ways. We must let the resolve of our conviction and our sobriety, perhaps if, God's, if God wills, shake them out of their slumber. We're praying that perhaps the Holy Spirit might burn our words into their heart and grant them faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what godliness requires in an increasing pagan society. Clear, unapologetic gospel witnessing. Today, living after the cross and after the resurrection of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ is our distinctive message in this world. This is what we herald, what we proclaim, and we must preach it in season and out of season, owing, always functioning as ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so we pray, like verse 1, and we preach, and then finally we trust. And that's the, the last description of the godly in the face of opposition. I'm just calling it joyful trusting. Look again at verse 6 with me. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Yahweh, for you have put gladness in my heart, more than when their grain and their new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. 
So here in this portion, surrounded by doubters and defectors, those who are questioning God, David now offers up another prayer. He says, Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. Let your face shine upon us. The language of David here draws upon the Aaronic blessing that we saw a few weeks ago from Numbers chapter 6. It's David asking for God's blessing. Please be pleased with us. Pour out your blessing and your grace upon us. And then the psalm ends with really two amazing verses. The first, verse 7, describes the present, the present reality or the present emotional state of David's heart. And the second, verse 8, describes how David will move forward in life. First, in poetic language, David here describes the emotion of his heart. Speaking to Yahweh, David says, you have given me a gladness, a gladness that surpasses even their days of greatest harvest, of times when their grain bins are overflowing and when their wine vats are, are full to the brim and when they revel in their prosperity, the joy you have given me far surpasses all of theirs. He says, you have, you have put, you have placed gladness in my heart. So here we'd say, this is no manufactured joy. This is true joy gifted from the Lord to David's heart. This is, this is not the, the temporary lift that comes from prescribed medication. This is not the temporary joy that comes from material blessing in this life. This is the joy that comes from Yahweh alone. And this is the fruit of the Holy Spirit that is joy. It's the joy of our salvation. This is the joy or gladness that we should have in our hearts from the Lord. And David here is, notice also Psalm 5 on this concept. Psalm 5, next, very next Psalm, verses, 5, or verses 11 and 12. David prays for this universal experience of joy. In just this very next psalm, look at it, chapter 5, verse 11. David says, But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy, and you may shelter them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as like a shield. So here, David's just saying, look, this joy comes from you. You've given it to me. And David's joy surpasses that of his adversaries. Again, I think the pronoun there is instructive. More than their new wine and when their grain abounds, you've given me greater joy than all of that. I think we do well to ask, is this true of us? Is Psalm 4 verse 7 characteristic of our own lives? Is a joy just a characteristic feature of your own life? Or are you too maybe perhaps rooted in this world, in the concerns of this world, to experience the joy that we should have from the Lord? Perhaps the concerns of this world have robbed you from the joy that we ought to have in Christ and in the Lord. So David here, this is again just joy overflowing, far surpassing his adversaries. And then in the final verse, the joy bleeds into peace a peace that promotes rest. Look again at the final verse of the psalm. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, 
For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. I love this verse. I love this verse coupled with Psalm 3, verse 5, another verse on sleep, great verses on sleep. There it says, I lay down and I slept, I awoke, for Yahweh sustains me. If you struggle falling asleep and you worry at night from fear, memorize those two verses. Psalm chapter 3, verse 5, and Psalm 4, verse 8. Wonderful verses. In peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. So with all those raging about him, false accusations and doubters uh, by his side, without a fret or a worry in David, David's heart, he goes to bed. He says, in peace I, I will lie down and I will sleep. David trusted that God alone in this life would keep him safe. God, David here was just fully convinced that if God desired it, he would get through the, nice, the night safely. He, if God desired it, he would wake up in the morning. If, it, if not, if it, was not, if it was not God's will for him to wake up in the morning, then David would not see the sunrise. And David knew that, and he trusted that. He was convinced that since God oversaw every one of his breasts and ordained each one of those breasts, then there was really no reason to fear, no reason to worry in his heart. You see, in the economy of an all-powerful, all-sovereign God, there really is no logic in worrying. I mean, I don't think here that this means David was negligent of his responsibilities, as if he was just careless and haphazard. I bet, for example, David still slept with a sword underneath his pillow or a dagger or something. But after he had taken all of the necessary precautions, trust in Yahweh produced peace, and that peace gave way to sleep. He says, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Yahweh, make me dwell in safety. My, my safety is directly contingent and dependent upon you. So here's David, despite his adversaries, despite these false accusations, we find him praying, we find him preaching, and we find him sleeping. He confidently prays, he unashamedly witnesses, and then finally he joyfully trusts in Yahweh. That's what describes him here. And beloved, we must say, we must recognize that in this life, our hope is fixed in the future. Trials will come. We can be certain of that. Either, this is true, either Christ will return for us or each one of us will one day sleep really the most peaceful of all sleeps when we lie in the casket with dirt covering our bodies. So that'll be true. Either we'll die or Christ will come back. And that reality will be here soon enough for each one of us. And therefore, since that is our hope, that we're going to be spending eternity with Christ, then let us not waste our days fretting about what will or will not be. Let us not be distracted by 1,000 lesser things that keep us from the work that we ought to be doing. Christ has commissioned us as his ambassadors on the earth. We've been left here for a, a purpose. Uh, we're to herald the gospel message. We're to carry his gospel to a lost and dying world, pleading with them to be reconciled to God through God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so may faithfulness to this task define us 
to the very end of our days, to our very last day, constantly being faithful. And in the face of opposition, we pray, let us preach also, and then let us sleep, let us rest, trusting in our sovereign God. May this be true of us. May this example characterize our lives. Let's pray and ask the Lord to make it so. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this psalm. Lord, we thank you for David, a unique man in Scripture, no doubt. Wonderful promises given to him. A man after God's own heart. Not a perfect man, a sinful man, without question. But we thank you for his example. Uh, We thank you for his boldness. We thank you for his just unadulterated rest upon you and his trust in you. And we thank his thankful for his model of praying. Lord, we pray that these things would characterize our lives. Lord, we... Reflecting again on 2 Timothy 3, we see all around us that this culture is described by lovers of self, that men who have a form of godliness but, but really deny its power. We know that difficult days are ahead for us, but Lord, may we be found faithful. May the, may the difficulty of life not cause us to sin in any way, but would we trust in the Lord through it all? And may we be faithful to continue being a witness, continue depending upon you in prayer, and just trusting in you to sovereignly guide us through all things and sovereignly take care of us and provide for us. Let us not worry, as you've commanded us not to do, but help us to pray and to witness and to trust in our sovereign God. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that you've done for us. Most especially, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for sending your son to die in our place, taking our sins upon himself, paying the consequence of them so that we could be made right with you, that our sins could be forgiven and that we could be seen as righteous, that we could be declared righteous because of the righteousness of another given to us. So Lord, we pray that you would make us righteous in every way. Would we be this godly man who you set you have set apart for yourself may that be true of us wherever we're at in our life with christ and no matter how long we've been a christian may we determine to continue to grow to be more like christ may we not settle into just complacency in this life but make us earnestly desirous of more and more christ likeness in our lives so that we could be pleasing to you May it all be done in worship to you. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing song will be Christ our hope in life and death. Let's stand and sing together. Looks like... What is our hope in life and 